You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Please turn with me in God's Word to the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests And elders had said to them, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the mouth or you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against His Anointed One. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants, to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Congregation of our Lord, You may know that this month is known as the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. In fact, today, November 3rd, is a day in which churches around the world pray for the persecuted church. I have a blog post here from the Gospel Coalition, and it tells, speaks of a few things about the persecuted church. I want to just read a few things to you from there just to kind of set the tone also for the context of of our sermon in Acts chapter 4. Christians today are the most widely persecuted religious group in the world today. Give you some examples in North Korea. North Koreans uh, who are suspected of having contact with South Koreans or other foreign missionaries in China, and those who are caught in possession of a Bible have been known to be executed in North Korea today. We think of our Syrian Christians. The Presbyterian Church in Syria. And Syrian Christians, it's reported, are victims of disproportionate violence and abuse. And it's... They're warned further that Christian women in Syria are particularly vulnerable to sexual abuse. In August, this past August 2013, Egypt faced, listen to this, what has been called the worst anti-Christian violence in seven centuries this past month. 38 churches were burned down. 23 were vandalized, 58 homes were burned and looted, and 85 shops, 16 pharmacies, lots of Christians in Egypt are pharmacists, 
Uh, and three hotels were demolished. Six Christians were killed in violence and seven were kidnapped. Or you think of Pakistan in this, in September of this year. Two suicide bombers exploded shrapnel-laden vests outside All Saints Church in the old city of Peshawar. Choir members and children attending Sunday school were among the 81 people killed. The attack left 120 wounded, 10 of them in critical condition. Or you think of Kenya in Nairobi in that shooting in the mall in September. And the terrorists asked the people for the name of Muhammad's mother or asked them to recite a verse from the Quran in order to identify who were non-Muslims. The terrorists announced, we have come to kill you Christians and Kenyans because you've been killing our women and children in Somalia. Any Muslims can go. This month, four Christians in Iran will get 80 lashes, 8-0. Why? For drinking wine during a communion service. The list goes on and on. It's estimated by some that... On average, a hundred Christians a month around the world are killed. And though these numbers are hard to figure out, uh, some sources claim that the numbers are as high as 100,000 Christians a year are killed. Do we consider ourselves a part of the persecuted church? Picture a battle scene, maybe in a, a movie or something, in the ancient battles of these two armies on opposing hills and the, and the cavalry and the infantry and all this. And, and the infantry are set in and the, you have these groups of the army that just sit back and watch. Maybe the nobility who say, we don't want to engage in this war. Are we comfortably sitting on the sidelines? Or are we, do we see ourselves as in the very thick of the battle? Do we consider ourselves a part of the persecuted church? How we answer that question will determine how we pray. You remember the words of our Lord in John 15. He said, remember these words. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. Do we consider ourselves a part of the persecuted church? Jesus, listen, in all his resurrected, glorified, in his glorified status, he was seated at the right hand of God the Father. He said to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? Jesus identified himself as being part of the persecuted church. He identified with his body. And we are to identify with the body of Christ around the world. And indeed, in our own lives, as Jesus said, if you follow me, you indeed will be persecuted. As you stand for Christ, even in your families, in our workplaces, in society, we face this. 
Well, in Acts 4, we have something of the first wave of persecution. And we see it something of how the persecuted church responds to this. Something so glorious. Peter and John, you may remember in Acts, in the previous part, had just by the, by the power of God healed a man who had been lame at the temple gate. He'd been, he's a man who was born lame for 40 plus years. And those two men, Peter and John, had boldly proclaimed the gospel and the leaders of the, of the Jews, the Sanhedrin, those theological thugs who had, uh, wanted to crucify Christ, condemned him as well. They threw these two men, Peter and John, in prison in the Sanhedrin slammer for the night. Verse 17, their gag order was put on them. Uh, they said, you know what? You're not allowed to speak anymore in Jesus' name. And in the next morning, these they are released. And that's where we are in verse 23. And Peter and John go back to the believers. And we see after this first wave, a, a very, uh, you might say, some easy persecution, just a little bit of jail time, but they are against this, this whole Sanhedrin, against the Jews. How do they respond to all this? How ought we to respond? Well, the church, the persecuted church, one of the things that we see, first of all, is they go to prayer. The first thing we notice is that they remember where they are. They remember their location. Where are they? Verse 24. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said. They remember where they are. They remember that even though that they are in Jerusalem, they are a very small group of people. They have the Sanhedrin who's already crucified their Lord. They remember that they are under a sovereign Lord. That the kingdom of King Jesus is indeed here. And this prayer, as they lift this prayer up to God, we see something of their priority. As Peter and John return, they are those who want to speak to God. To a God who is sovereign. This is something of the prayer of the persecuted church as it expresses her confidence in her creator, God. A God who rules over all things. A God who is the author of history. The Lord of history. They don't say, you know, do the open theism thing. You know, God really doesn't have a will. He's always trying to maybe respond to what we think. We're, oh, what are they going to do? Oh, I don't really know what they're going to do. And, and now I'm going to try and react and figure out what's going to happen in the early church. No, God knew exactly what was going to happen. You look at verse 28. As it talks about Herod in verse 27 and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and how they conspired against the Holy Servant Jesus. You see in verse 28, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. These Christians believed in predestination. They believed that God had determined all things beforehand. 
And that this God of ours was so powerful, not a hair could fall from their head without the Father in heaven. And they quote Psalm 2. It just shows the early church's total belief in the authority and the sufficiency and the trustworthiness of the Holy Scriptures. This God who has given us His Word is not some maybe kind of God who shows up now and then, who's not really interacting with history. No, this is the God who has ordained history. He is the author. And His Word can be trusted. They quote something of the battle between the nations and against the Lord and against His Christ, the Anointed One. Boys and girls, you know in the Old Testament, in the story of Saul and David, as Saul was chasing David and wanted to kill him, David, what did he do? He refused to kill Saul. Why? Because he was the Lord's Anointed. David understood that. David knew that. And here we have in Psalm 2, the nations conspiring against Yahweh and against the Lord's anointed. Not David now, but Christ. And God in His infinite wisdom decreed that this Christ, His anointed, would suffer and die and be killed at the hands of wicked men in order to give us life, to atone for our sins. And so the early church, the persecuted church, they remember where they are. They remember that God is sovereign. It's very interesting today in our Western world, which often is not very persecuted, our Western church, that one of the doctrines that's going down the tubes is the sovereignty of God. And in places where there is immense persecution, the first doctrine that these Christians hold to is the sovereignty of God. They remember their location. Is it possible in all our comfort, in all our affluence, that we become to believe that we can do it on our own, we can do it on our own strength? We may be content to sit back on the high hills above the battle and watch There's a battle to engage yourselves in, isn't there? God is ruling. We think of this world, the problems in this world are not just immorality, sexual immorality, and financial mismanagement, and all these kinds of things. The fundamental problem of this world is rebellion against God. Rebellion against the Lord's 
anointed. And the psalmist in Psalm 2, he speaks about this. You know, he says, it is madness. It is absolute madness to stand against God. Let us try and break their bonds. We need to remember our location. The sovereignty of God, the God who is the creator of all things, they say as they begin to pray to God, it's the first thing they lift up. They don't say, you know, take away the persecution or, or any other prayer requests. Sovereign God, sovereign Lord, you made the heaven and the earth, the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant David. You you did a forecast on this. You prophesied about this, and it's very true. Your anointed one, the Lord Jesus, was, was crucified. Today in our world, in our Western world, the sovereignty of God is something that is looked at it as, as a very cold, Doctrine. Even in our society today, the word doctrine in our churches is not a nice word. We don't get excited when we hear doctrine. We need doctrine. Doctrine is a beautiful thing. Doctrine is teaching. Lots of people say, you know, doctrine is bad. Well, that's a doctrine. It's a doctrine that doctrine's bad, and it's a bad doctrine. We need true doctrine. And the sovereignty of God is a beautiful doctrine, loved ones. We are in the hands of not some demagogue who is cold and heartless, but we are in the hands of a God who is sovereign, who rules over all things, who is ruling his kingdom with hands that have been pierced for us. With a Christ who suffered and died for his church. It's amazing. We are being ruled by a father who gave up his son, his only son, for us. Remember where you are. The early church lifted up praises, prayers, communion to this God who is very real in their life. They also pray for something more. And we see something of this in verse 29. Now, Lord, consider their threats. You know, Lord, you're, you're looking. They don't say one way or the other what to do about it. Consider their threats. And what do they pray for? Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. They pray, first of all, for your word, God's word, to be proclaimed. The church remembers their location under a sovereign Lord, under his kingdom, but they also remember to pray for their weapon. And you notice something. If you believe in the sovereignty of God, lots of people say, well, if you believe in the sovereignty of God, you don't even pray anymore. God's going to do it all. No, this church believes in the sovereignty God of God and they are praying. They are praying people. It's the first thing they need to do. They want to do. They want to communicate with the sovereign Lord of the universe. And they ask God that His word would be proclaimed. That this spiritual weapon, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, would be drawn. 
and would be held out and proclaimed in the world around them. As Paul would say, it is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. And you notice that they pray that God's word, your word, would be proclaimed. They want God's teaching, God's doctrine, God's truth to be proclaimed. Now, if you look back at chapter 4, verse 2, uh, Peter and John were preaching in the right in the temple, Solomon's colonnade, and the Sadducees are there. And verse 2, it says, They were greatly disturbed, these Sadducees, because the apostles were proclaiming were, sorry, because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Of course, Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They didn't want to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. They didn't want to believe in Jesus. And Peter and John were jailed for the night. It's so easy in our world as preachers and teachers, as Christians, to want to just, you know, not totally give people the full truth. To tickle their ears, to give them what they want. After all, we don't want to be too persecuted, do we? Peter and John stood in the temple where these leaders were and proclaimed a doctrine, the resurrection of the dead in Christ Jesus. They preached that, they preached that teaching in the face of huge opposition. And they return home now with their fellow Christians and they pray, Lord, may your word Continue to be proclaimed. Are we convinced, loved ones, that what this world most greatly needs is the gospel? Not a half gospel, not a man-centered gospel. But what this world needs is Jesus Christ. Christ and Him crucified. In chapter 4, verse 18 and 19, uh, the leaders of the Jews called Peter and John and it says, when they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of, in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking what we have seen and heard. This is, you know, verifiable evidence in their Day, what we have seen and what we have heard. This is their testimony of what Jesus Christ, who He is and what He has done. We want Your Word. I spent some time working with Middle East Reformed Fellowship in Africa. At one point, we were uh, we had MAF pilots pick up. Uh, people from all over East Africa and bring them to a center and then we would teach them. And at one point, one of the MAF pilots, who I got to know a little bit, he said to me one Sunday afternoon, he said, you know what, James, 
you guys are the only guys, Murph, who are doing it. I said, what do you mean, doing it? He said, you know, like preaching the gospel, you know, teaching them about the Bible. I said to him, what do you mean we are the only ones? He said, we, f- we pick up people all over East Africa and drop them here and there. And we meet all kinds of people who were former missionaries. People who've been drilling wells, telling people how to plant crops. But they're not teaching people the gospel. I find maybe his statement a bit of an overstatement. But it's something of a trend. Are we convinced that what this world most greatly needs is the Word of God? This is what this persecuted church prayed for. It's what we need to be praying for. It needs to be on our hearts, loved ones. It must be on our hearts. We must be praying for this. If we love the truth, if we love Christ and all that He has done for us, we will want this Word of God being proclaimed. The power of God unto salvation. Paul would say, 2 Timothy 3, and following into chapter 4, that the usefulness of Scripture, all Scriptures God breathed, you know the passage, Paul tells Timothy a little bit after that, preach the Word in season and out of season. It's the Word. These early Christians had a burning desire, a burning prayer that God's Word would be proclaimed. The persecuted church was convinced that this is what the world needs. This is what we need to do, loved ones. We need not first to think about how can we uh, you know, write checks for this to missionaries. If that's the first thing we think, then we've missed the boat. We need to be praying. We need to be praying for this. Praying for our brothers and sisters. Praying for ourselves. Praying in our lives. That this would be a reality in our own lives. Because we are all small p prophets. Prophet, priests, and kings. If you look at the world around, you see how often how the gospel spreads through countries. Not always, first of all, off a pulpit. Well, this is the primary means of grace. It spreads in relationships. As people in Ethiopia drink coffee together and tell people about Christ. As people in China go door to door and and tell people about the Lord Jesus and what He has done. And people give a Bible to someone have a Bible study. And yes, as God's Word is proclaimed through the preacher, oh, how we must be praying. The early church, she remembers her her location under a sovereign God. She prays that this sword of the Spirit would be drawn. But she also prays 
Lord, may we speak your word, not another word, not another doctrine. May we speak your word. And then it describes how we would say it. With great boldness. With courage. Think of Peter. Remember Peter? And how he, on the night of when Christ was betrayed, Peter was in the courtyard and he denied Christ. He chickened out in front of a servant girl. Nothing wrong with servant girls. But he chickened out in front of a servant girl. And now Peter has been preaching in the temple in front of Sanhedrin. They've heard all about it. The demonstration of the Spirit of God coming upon this early church. The people being changed. And speaking the word with boldness. And after this first wave of persecution, light persecution, uh, they pray again, Lord, may we speak your word with great boldness. Not just with a little bit of boldness, but with great boldness. Perhaps the leading cause for not speaking the word in our culture is not fear of persecution, just fear itself. Proverbs 29, verse 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare. The fear of man lays a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. You see, if we understand, if we believe, loved ones, listen, if you believe in the sovereignty of God, if you believe that God is really great, then that snare of fear of man is going to be gone. Or you'll see it, but you'll, you'll know that there's something greater. There's someone greater. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. And these disciples of Christ in Acts 4, they recognized, even from this prayer, they recognized how crippling fear can be for the early church, how crippling fear can be for you and me. You know, it's it's actually easier sometimes for a pastor to preach in front of a group like this than to talk to a neighbor. We all fight fear, don't we? And these people knew it too. These people were surrounded. Surrounded by enemies who wanted to kill them, wanted to stone them. It was a small church. A few thousand. It's going to keep growing. And they pray. Their prayer itself as they ask for boldness shows how much they desire. Lord, we know, we, we know what you have given to us. Help us. Give us boldness in our lives. just want to look at that theme of boldness in Acts for a few minutes, a couple minutes, and let's just look at a number of verses on boldness here because it's a theme that just runs through this whole book. So we'll look quickly. Acts 9. Pull out your Bible. Acts 9.27. Uh, 
Acts 9.27, we have the word fearlessly and another way of saying boldness. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly, fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Okay, and then you go to Acts 13, verse 46. Paul and Barnabas, Acts 13, 46. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first. And then he goes on. And then if you go at chapter 14, verse 3. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. And then chapter 18, verse 26. Again, 1826, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. And then uh, uh, two more, 26, verse 26. Paul before Festus, the king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. And Paul is uh, speaking with also something of this same uh, uh, pressing upon Festus. And then lastly, uh, chapter 28, the very end, Last verse, boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke has this as a theme throughout Acts. Something of the answer to prayer, and even at the end of our text here in Acts 4, this boldness. And Paul will also say in Ephesians 6, pray also for me that Whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. We must be those who pray in our lives. Lord, help me not to be an obnoxious person, but to be able to speak to my coworkers about Jesus. Give me boldness, Lord, because I'm often so crippled by fear. The seniors that I live in in, in Manoa Manor or whoever's, wherever we are where there aren't Christians, we, 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 we say, Lord, help me. Give me courage to speak. Paul says in Ephesians 6, pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me. He, he's praying for it himself. He recognizes in his own life how much he needs this. 
And we recognize we don't get, we don't share or evangelize uh, people because we are commanded to. Yes, we are commanded to. And we must evangelize because we're commanded to. But we ought to do it because we have good news. We tell people the good news about a hockey game. We tell people good news about stocks and whatever it is that are going up. Real estate. We tell people good news about this and that. Oh, there's so much to talk about after church. But loved ones, we have been given the good news of Jesus Christ. And we are not allowed to sit back in our lives. We are not allowed. We must commit ourselves to the battle. We must commit ourselves to the king. We must commit ourselves to prayer. To prayer for the persecuted church. For prayer in our own lives. If our hearts have grown cold. If our prayer lives are dead. We must pray. We must repent. We must ask God for forgiveness in our lives. We must engage in the battle. God has called us to this threefold office of prophet, priest, and king, hasn't he? An amazing calling. A holy calling. In war, one of the worst things that can happen to an army today is if, if the satellites are knocked out, if communications locked out, knocked out, you're toast. Literally. We communicate with the Sovereign Lord. The God who we believe, who knows all things, who sees the battlefield from above, who knows the hearts of men and of kings. And God who has determined the outcome. We pray. As we pray, we recognize as this whole passage is embedded in this, and I I see uh, Reverend Young is going to be preaching on the Holy Spirit this afternoon. That we are those who are in utter, total dependency on the Holy Spirit. Very powerful passage in uh, 1 Thessalonians 1.5. Paul tells that church, Our gospel came to you not in word only, but in power and in demonstration of the Holy Spirit. We must, in our lives, recognize the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of the, the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And you know what? If you look at your life, and if you see in your life a whole lack of, uh, uh, if you see uh, prayerlessness in your life, it's really a sign. It's a bad sign. It's a sign that you are not depending on God and on the Holy Spirit to be working in our lives to equip us. In our form for baptism, I haven't checked in your form, but in our form for baptism in the URC, one of the questions is, do you promise to raise your children up in the fear and knowledge of the Lord, and then it says in there, in reliance on the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. We recognize that we are totally dependent on God. And without the Holy Spirit, 
what we are doing this morning, preaching the gospel, hiding God's word in our heart, applying the gospel to our own hearts personally, without the without the Holy Spirit, the preaching of the gospel is a fool's errand. It's pointless. It's like on the construction site telling the young guy who just showed up, go to my truck and get out, go get the board stretcher. He cut the two by four too short. Go get the thing out of the back. It'll stretch two by fours. Go get it. And he looks in there. What's a fool's errand? Without the Holy Spirit, all that we are doing is a fool's errand. All our teaching, all our Christian education, all the work of missionaries, all our clubs, Cadets, gems, young peoples is a fool's errand. We need him. Paul would say in First Corinthians or Second Corinthians one nine, after he himself was so persecuted, he says, Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He says, we had this persecution. Why? What did it do? It, it did something very good to us. It did something very good to us. That we might not rely on ourselves. God teaches that in our lives in various ways. That we might not rely on ourselves. It drives us to prayer. It drove the early church to prayer. A little flock found its assurance here in the book of Acts with a powerful sign. A powerful sign says in verse 31, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. and They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and speak spoke the word boldly. They had prayed for powerful signs and wonders. And powerful signs and wonders accompanied the apostolic age as a sign to the testimony, to the authority of the apostles. And today in our culture, today so many churches want signs and wonders again. But those signs and wonders were part of the apostolic age, not a part of our age. So often we want the signs and we miss, listen, we miss the power of things that are going on right now. Children, would you like the sign to Disneyland or would you like to be in Disneyland? Well, you know the answer. God has given us the Holy Spirit. The Spirit who is our comforter. And we look around the world today and we see what the Holy Spirit is doing. And we read of Christians who are willing to go to the table of the Lord and who are willing to receive 80 lashes. Think about that. God's power today is being displayed all over the world. The armies are engaging. The kingdom of God is coming. And we are a part of this. We get to be a part. We get to fight. You know, you think of soldiers. Maybe you have your grandparents who can speak of maybe World War II or something. And you ask them, well, what did you do? 
wow, we were in the resistance and this is a story. And you're excited maybe to hear about this. Maybe you have a grandparent who said, you know, oh, we didn't really do anything. We sat in a foxhole. We chickened out. These are the days to engage. What a glorious thing it is to be a part of the kingdom of Christ. What a glorious thing. Yes, we may be knocked down. We remember where we are. The sovereign Lord who rules, who reigns. We live in communion with this God. We pray for the weapon, our soul weapon, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We pray, Lord, give us boldness. Help us. We need you. We live dependently on the Holy Spirit. May God bless us and strengthen us and cause his face to shine upon us as we serve him here with joy and delight. Indeed, as a persecuted church, as we stand for Christ. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.